0: Today, I want to start with a scenario that I think probably happens to most of us, maybe even many nights. It's pitch dark in your house, you're sound asleep, you're in bed, you're super comfortable, and you wake up and you have to go to the bathroom. Anybody been there? Okay, you wake up, you got to go to the bathroom. What do you do? You kind of have two choices. Do you go it in the dark or do you, do you try to get the light on, right? And so my guess is there's some of us who have thought of this, that we got a night light in the bathroom. Anybody night lights in the bathroom? Okay, a couple of us might have thought through and you take your phone, you kind of let the blue screen light the way to the bathroom, you just got to be careful you don't drop it while you're by the toilet. Anybody do that, that their method? Yep, we got one. What about, there's a new toilet seat, I just saw this, I was looking, it's lit at the bottom of the toilet seat so it lights up the inside of the toilet. So if anybody's looking for Christmas gifts, there you go. So the, another option you have is, which is what my wife does, turn the light on, turn it off real fast. Just enough to like see where you're at, but that's it. So that's one method. Another method is you put a dimmer switch and you turn the dimmer switch all the way down, then turn the light on. That way you've got just enough light. Anybody use the dimmer switch? Okay. We've got a couple other options. You don't want to go with the light, you go with the dark. So here's what you do. You do one of these moves. Find the toilet seat make sure it's down or make sure it's up or... Anybody do this method? You just go by where you think it is and just sit down in hopes that you land on the seat, not in the toilet. Um, Or some of you guys, you might do that you think you know where it is and you just start going just a little bit, hoping that you don't hear the sound of porcelain. Worse yet, the sound of water hitting drywall. Now, anytime your wife will wake up when you go into the bathroom, and she will now be listening to hear if she hears water hitting porcelain, hitting tile. Um, But, again, you have this option to turn on the light or not turn on the light. And I would guess that most of us do not turn on the light. Or if you turn on the light, you turn on just a little bit of a light. It's not like you're going to go through and turn on all the lights and turn on the light in the bedroom, turn on a lamp, get your flashlight, go turn on the light in the bathroom. You're not going to do that because when you're in the midst of darkness, light is almost offensive. Does that make sense? Like at night... You don't want the light to be bright, it's too jarring, it's too jolting, it's almost shocking, it's uncomfortable. And today what we're going to talk about is actually a light, a great light, shining in the midst of darkness. And we're going to end really with asking a question of what is our response to light in the midst of darkness? To do that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be verse 12 through 17. So if you want to start getting your way to that, that's fine. Um, but where we've been lately is we, we started talking about um, Jesus. He kind of gives the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks specifically about prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And so we spent weeks doing that. And now what we're doing is we're moving backwards to find everything that Jesus, that happened before the Sermon on the Mount. So we are in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to progress backwards. Kind of weird. You can read the Bible backwards. We're reading Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to keep going backwards till Christmas Eve will be on, in Matthew chapter 1. So that's kind of where we're headed for the rest of 2019. But again, for today, kind of background of our text of Matthew chapter 4. Again, God creates everything. He makes it beautiful and wonderful, but then he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they, they fall. They listen to the serpent, and they, 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 they fall into that temptation. But then the rest of the Old Testament is telling us that one day something better is going to happen. What happens is, is Jesus is born. And so in our before our text happens, Jesus is born. There's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. He comes in to prepare the way. He's telling people to repent. He's baptizing people. And then... Jesus himself gets baptized, and then he gets his turn of being tempted, and the enemy comes to Jesus and tempts him, but in the, in the way that Adam and Eve fell, Jesus doesn't fall. He stands firm in the midst of temptation, and then he goes out, and when he goes out is Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, which says this. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. God, um, may your words come through with what I'm going to say. And God, wherever each of us are at, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would shine your light in the midst of the darkness. In your awesome and precious name. Amen. So again, in our text, John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus goes to the sea at Capernaum, to two specific places, to Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, if you want me to put you to sleep, I would tell you the whole story of that, but I was telling, talking to Sarah about it, and I was explaining all of it, and she's like, stop, that's, that's too much. People will not know what you're talking about. So you can read basically the whole book of Genesis, and you can get a lot of it. So I won't go deep into that, but basically... If you ever heard the 12 tribes of Israel, there was 12 tribes of Israel. Zebulon and Naphtali are two of the 12. But those 12 tribes of Israel were all of Jacob's sons. And you get this really crazy situation where Jacob is married to two women and then has kids with each of the women, but then also with each of their servants. Crazy story. It's interesting. Read it in the book of Genesis. But what happens is, is you have Zebulon and Naphtali, and Jesus is going into those areas. They were people, but they became their own tribe. They became their own place. So they kind of had their own area, their own territory when they go into the promised land. And if you think about, like, there's certain places that you think of them and you automatically think of something. So if you think of Nebraska, you think of corn, right? If you think of Wisconsin, what do you think of? Cheese. If you think of Ohio, what do you think of? Buckeyes, Right? So in the same way, when, when these people would have heard Jesus is going into Zebulon and Naphtali, they would have automatically thought something. They would have known something about those areas where for us, we're like, that's a weird name. Well, Zebulon, it was, it was crazy because Zebulon had this crazy relationship with Issachar, one of the other 12 tribes of Israel. And what they would do is they didn't really want to spend a bunch of time learning the law and really getting to know God's heart on things. They just wanted to financially back the people of Issachar, so that they could learn all that and tell them. Does that make sense? So really, when, when, you, when they would have heard Jesus going into Zebulun, they would have thought of, it was a people that would rather give their money than really learn what it means to please God. Really give a little bit of the time, rather than give a lot of their time to really get to know God. But when they would have heard about the people in Naphtali, they would have thought about um, the reason and the way that Naphtali is born. It's because... Leah and Rachel Jacob's wives again weird situation are fighting amongst each other and it became known they became known as a people that would dispute with the ones that they should treat as family and if you really stop and think about these two areas like so many times people read the bible and be like it's not practical it's not relevant anymore but have you ever met someone or has it ever been you that really you'd rather just put a couple bucks in the offering plate than really know what God wants. Have you ever been in a place where you just really wanting, I'm just going to give him a couple minutes, and then I can do with whatever I want the rest of the day? That was what the people of Zebulon were like. Or maybe you're the type of person that you have relationships, and relationships are hard, and it, you get this conflict between people and relationship, and there's people that you should be treating as family, and yet the relationship is fractured or broken, or there's a dispute, there's a quarrel. You know, the thing is, is we are I would say, in our culture, really no different than the place of Zebulon and Naphtali. Those things can can truly be what describes us, but it goes through, and in this text it says that they are dwelling in darkness rather than in the light. And, and you can see just from those two things, those are not the ways that God created us. God did not create us just to give him a couple bucks, but he created us so that we would know him and, and our life would be his. God created us in such a way that we would have relationship with other people. It wouldn't be broken and fractured, but these people were living in the midst of the darkness. And that's two of the ways that they were living in darkness. But if you remember, as you, if you read through it, it talks about the fact that they were dwelling in darkness. They were dwelling in the shadow of death. And so I want to talk just for a couple minutes about what does that really mean, over and beyond those two quick things. Um, if, you, if you noticed, it talks about in the text that we just read that um, so that what would be fulfilled in Isaiah so that this would be fulfilled in the book of Isaiah. And that comes about in, in Isaiah chapter 9. That What we just read about the light going into the darkness, into Zebulon and into Naphtali, that was written about in Isaiah chapter 9 hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this. And when you really dive through and look through Isaiah chapter 1 through 8, you see even more of what the darkness that these people were living in. It's described that the people of Zebulun, the people of Naphtali, and really the whole (strful) the whole twelve tribes of Israel—that's hard to say—what they were struggling with. In Isaiah chapter one through eight, it talks about that these are a people who had rebelled. These are a people who had rejected God. They despised His word. Their speech and their deeds were evil. It describes them as a people that gave no justice to the fatherless. There were a people who were not defending the cause of the widows. In that day and age, if a man died and he was married to a woman, the woman couldn't hold property, the woman couldn't have a job, and so she immediately would have gone into the depths of poverty. And there was no one fighting for that. There was no one defending that. Um, It says that the people, they were letting other people be taken advantage of. And not only were they allowing people to be taken advantage of, but they were also dealing corruptly with people. These people were living in deep darkness. It's described that they were wise in their own eyes, that they were laden with iniquity, and their land was filled with idols. Again, I feel like that could be exactly describing our culture today. They got to a point to where they began to call what was good evil, and they called what was evil good. It goes on and it describes these people were full of pride and selfishness. They not only would mistreat people, but they would do nothing to stop other people from mistreating people. These people were dwelling in deep darkness. And it's because of that darkness that God in verses, in chapters one through eight of Isaiah says that the people had become a burden, that he was weary of dealing with them, that they were utterly, estranged from him. It says that they um, weren't broken, ashamed, or even blushing about the things that they were doing. They really thought what they were doing was good, and they thought good was evil, and evil was good. And then if you see this, in the midst of all of that darkness, remember like we said, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you got to go to the bathroom. You don't want to turn the light on. Why? Because the light is offensive. These people were dwelling in such depths of darkness that the thought of light was offensive. And again, I think that can sum up oftentimes our culture. And it's because of them living in such deep darkness that it said that God says that what their future, what would be coming for them, is that he was going to come in and bring them low. It says that he was going to come in and terrify the earth, that he was going to cast out their idols. He was going to remove their support and remove their supply. It's not a place you want to be. God said he was going to turn the place into a heap of ruin, ruin, that they were going to fall by the sword because his anger was kindled against them. You know, when it says that they were dwelling in the shadow of death, what does that really mean? What it really means is the greatest hope for their future was that they would be destroyed. That was the absolute best thing that could happen in their minds. They were in darkness. They didn't want the light. They were dwelling in the shadow of death. And it reminds me so much of Hebrews 2.15 that says, those through who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you get to a point to where there's no hope, the greatest hope you have is that it's over, that you're done, that there's destruction. And that's what the people who are dwelling in this deep darkness, that's where they were. In the darkness, they did not want to see light. It would be too uncomfortable. It would be too offensive. And then at best, they maybe were, some of them were like, well, let's have a little bit of light. You know, like let's have the night light in the bathroom. Let's have the dimmer switch. Let's use the light of the phone. That's kind of where they were at. They just wanted a little bit of light, if any at all. But these people were living in such a deep extent of darkness. But verse 16 says that they have seen a light. A light has dawned on them. And so, I really want to talk about next. Like, we talked about what does it mean when he says that they were dwelling in darkness? We've talked about that, but what does it mean when it says that the light, they had seen a great light? You know, if you really think all the way back to the very beginning, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth was void and formless and dark. And then it says, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in that moment, what you see is that God, not only is he light, but he is the designer of light, and in him there is no darkness. And we see that in a couple different verses. In in James, it talks about that God is the father of light, and there's no variation or shadow. We see in in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so so if they, they, they haven't seen light, they're in darkness, and the light's dawn on them, how can that be? God is light, but then God is the creator of light. There's no darkness at all but if you read in 1st Timothy chapter 6 it says that God dwells in an unapproachable light. How is it that these people can see a light when God himself is light and dwells in an unapproachable light? And then if you read in Exodus Exodus chapter 22 excuse me chapter 33 God says to Moses that man cannot see my face or they will die. And so if you stop and you think about it, these people are dwelling in darkness, and God's light is so unbelievably bright that it would kill you if you saw it. How is it that they see a light? Well, what happens is, is God in his awesome nature and his awesome glory sends his Son. What does that mean when they saw a light is that Jesus came to them. But it couldn't just be someone. It couldn't be anybody. It had to be someone that Colossians says is of the image of the invisible God. It says in Colossians that in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells. In Philippians, it says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so if you picture God is so unbelievably bright that if any of us saw him, it would just utterly destroy us immediately. But yet Jesus can stand in that light and he can radiate that light to us. And that's what happens when, when the, they were dwelling in the midst of darkness, they were dwelling in the shadow of, the, of death, Jesus came and radiated that light who was in the very nature God himself. And you get this beautiful picture that I think the way that I try to describe it in my own head to make it sense, it's almost like that God's light is too powerful and too profound for us that we even need Jesus to protect us from that light and yet still radiate that light to us. So that is why oftentimes in the Bible, Jesus is called the light of the world because Jesus comes in and he shines this light into the darkest of places. That's why he's called the true light, which comes to enlighten everyone That's why John chapter 12 verse 46 says that Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus comes into this place that it's super dark. And he does that so he can enlighten, so that he can illuminate, and so that he can deliver people out of darkness. That's why Jesus came. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but light has a way of creeping into every corner of a room. And so, if it was totally dark outside, if it was totally dark in this room, and I put one candle inside the baptismal, even though it would be, like, tucked down in there, it would still give light to almost every area. There might be a little bit of shadows, but everything would be illuminated. And as I was thinking about this week, I started thinking, like, the power of light, and I decided to to read more of, like, a scientific-type thing. It was, like, kindergarten-type scientific, as far as I can go with that. But what it said is this, is... If, you, if the earth was flat and you went to the top of a mountain and you lit a single candle, you would be able to see the flicker of the candle up to 30 miles away. And so I started thinking about this, and, and I'm a visual person, so I had to like draw it out. And so this, if you're not a visual person, this may not make any sense to you. But Indian Mound is one of the higher points in our area. It's about a mile away from here. Let's pretend the Indian Mound, the top of the Indian Mound, is a mountain, okay? So it's a mound ten. Sorry, that was a really bad joke. But I thought, I thought I might get a laugh or two, but no, you guys are too smart for that one. So you go to the top of this mountain, okay, and you light a single candle, a single candle, and it's pitch black and the earth is flat. In Fairborn, you would see the light. You would see the flicker in Fairborn. If you were to go to Cedarville, you would still see that flicker. If you were to go past Caesars Creek, you would see the flicker. You could go to Morrow. you could go past Mason, you could go almost to Fairfield, you could go to Hamilton, you could almost go to Oxford, you could go past Camden, past Eaton, past Lewisburg, past Brookville, past Phillipsburg, and almost to West Milton, and you would still see the flicker of the light. You could go that far, there's 30 miles for just one single little candle. But it said in that article that I read, that a greater light would be seen hundreds of miles away. And I was thinking about the the light of Christ and how powerful that light is. And If we're standing right here, the Sea of Galilee, Zebulon, Naphtali, it is 6,123 miles from right here. And when Jesus showed up in this time, it was about when he was 30 years old. So it was about 1,989 years ago. The power of the light of Christ that radiates from the Father can withstand 6,123 miles over 1,989 years later, and his light is that bright. I mean, that just blew me away as I was thinking about that, that he's that powerful, his light is that powerful, and yet, I look at my life and I see things, and I don't believe that he can overcome the darkness in those areas. And if his light is that powerful, what does that mean for the darkness that's in your heart? What does it mean for the darkness that's in your minds? You see, the thing is, our minds can be a playground for dark thoughts. Our hearts can be a playground of darkness but if Jesus can come in and that one single light can, can go 30 miles, a greater light could go 100 miles, but yet Jesus' light is so much brighter. What can it do and in your heart and in my heart? What can it do in my mind and in your mind? You know what it can do? It can, it can enlighten, illuminate. It can call us out of darkness. It can deliver us from darkness. I wish, though, that it was just that simple. And that was like, all right, we're done. You know, Mic drop. God's light came into darkness, boom, but there's more to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 says that the God of this world, that goes all the way back to that serpent, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So God is light, and he shows up into this deep place of darkness, but yet there's an enemy that's trying to blind people from seeing that light. You can also go and look in John chapter 3, verse 19, that says that the light has come into the world. Jesus came into this world, but people loved darkness. They didn't want to be woken up, like me in the middle of the night as I go to go to the bathroom. I don't want to be woken up. I want to stay in the dark because the light is offensive when you are used to the dark. but the light is coming to the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. The thing is, is Jesus came in as light into the darkness, but there's an enemy and we have our flesh that doesn't want to see that light. So Jesus comes in, they see this great light and it says that the light has dawned on them. And it it gives me this picture. At our house, um, our the sun rises in the east, and our back of our house faces that, so the sun comes up into the back of our house, and there's days where I'm sitting either in my backyard or sitting at the dining room table looking out that way, and it's like there's a little bit of light, but as soon as the sun rise comes over those trees, it's almost like it's just beams of light just shine right through, and what happens to the people in Zebulon and Naphtali, although they're living in this deep darkness the light has dawned on them the light is shining on them and that light is jesus and when jesus comes what he says he says repent for the kingdom of god is at hand the kingdom of heaven is at hand and so as i was thinking through this i think you know i think it's important for us to really understand what does it mean to repent and repentance really means to turn away from but if you go all the way back, like a couple of verses I said ago, John chapter 12, verse 46, it says, whoever believes in me, in Jesus, may not remain in the darkness. So repentance starts with belief, but you can't really believe unless you have knowledge of, right? So it's knowledge, then belief that leads to repentance and repentance. It's a turning away from, it's a, a regret that's accompanied by change. And I was thinking, as I explained that, I was like, you know, uh, that's not going to make much sense. And so I want to share just real fast my story. I truly grew up, I didn't hate God. I just didn't think about him. And I, you know, so often I think we think that the the opposite of love is hate. But I don't think the opposite of love is hate. I think the opposite of love is apathy. And that's where I was in a relationship with God. I just was apathetic. I just didn't care. I just didn't even think about him. And so here I am going through my life, living my way, not thinking about God at all. And it was almost like just one day there was a flick of a switch. That's the only way that I can describe it. One day I'm not thinking anything about God. I don't, I don't hate him. I don't care. I'm just not even thinking about him. The next day, like a flick of a switch, I remember, it, try, if I try to put it in words, what happened was, it was like a flick of a switch. And I thought, I think that there is a God. And I think that he's good. It was just like a little switch turned on. I think that there's a guy, I think that he's good. And then my very next thought, well, what would He think of me? I know the intentions of my heart. I know the, the, the thoughts that I meditate on. I know the evil that can be in my heart. What would God think of me? And in that scenario, what happened was, it started with the knowledge. I think that there's a guy, I think that he's good. And it led to a belief. I think that he is good. And then it led to, what would he think of me, which is when I went to him for forgiveness. I am not what you created. There's this flaw that has happened. I don't know what it is. I don't know how. I didn't understand it all. And I just said, I come to you, Lord. There was an aspect of regret. There was a turning there was this regret that was accompanied by change. But if I'm really honest, I can't say that I just have been perfect ever since. I mean, my kids would probably say I have, and my wife would probably say that I'm pretty, pretty perfect, but Tristan just looked at me with an eye roll. No, the thing is, is that even though light shines in the darkness and we come to know him and we repent, there's still darkness that's deep in our hearts. There's darkness in our minds that it's almost like we just try to put up enough block ed, blocks so that the light has to bend around enough corners that it, it might slow it down, or we try to cover it up with a lot of other lies, because we don't really want that light. Light is offensive. We don't want that light to come down into the deepest places of darkness, and, but the, for me, what happened was there was a repentance. It was a one-time thing. I turned. I was ready to go but it's also a continual thing because we all have those actions those thoughts those intentions that are in the deepest parts of our heart. And so when Jesus says repent he's saying repent one time like come into a relationship with him go to him for forgiveness but it's a continual thing day after day day after day day after day. So I think that's what he's meaning when he says repent but what I what I love is that Jesus gives a reason like as a parent if I like to not give a reason like be quiet And every once in a while, you'll get a, why? And my dad, we got him a shirt that said, no, because I said so. Like, that was what my dad would say. But Jesus here gives a reason. He says, repent. These people are in darkness. He is the light. He's come. And he says, repent. But then the reason he gives, he says, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so today, um, I want to build on a wall that Josh started to build a couple weeks ago. If you were here two weeks ago, we were going through the Lord's Prayer, and we were doing one of the first lines last, and we talked about uh, um, our Father, how be the name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And So what Josh talked about is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he did that, he talked about how God, when he talks about the kingdom, what is that? If you didn't listen, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back um, Listen to it on the website. it was really good, but he talks about the fact that when Jesus says, "Your kingdom come what he 's saying he 's talking about this kingdom and he gave this definition that god 's kingdom is the full reality of God himself in his complete and perfect reign and he talked about the fact that there's this uh, immediate aspect of the kingdom and then there's this futuristic part of the of the kingdom. And so it's kind of like these banners, the whole story of the Bible, but when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, he He wins. He's, he's king, but something else is going to happen, and one day he's coming back to fully, fully, fully establish his kingdom. And so right now, we're living in his kingdom, but not yet. It's like a already, but not yet. And so Josh did a great job of explaining that, and that God's kingdom is his full reality of God himself in his complete and perfect reign. And so I want to build on that just a little bit, and When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what does he mean about the kingdom of heaven? Exactly what Josh said, but a couple other things that I'll add to it. One, he's talking about a kingdom and he's the king. And I don't know about you, but I love that we live where we do and that we have experienced democracy. I think it is an awesome thing. Don't hear me wrong, but I think that it's ruined us. The reason I think that it's ruined us is because almost all of us we've grown up thinking that we should get a choice. We've grown up thinking that we should get a vote. We've grown up thinking that we should be asked before a decision is made, that we should get to be a part of the decision, that an argument should our argument should be heard, our opinion should be considered before anything is done. But the thing is the kingdom of God, it's not a democracy. He's not looking for our opinions. He is the king. He is the Lord, he is the master. So when Jesus is saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, when he's saying um, that uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is, I am the king. But there's a second thing that I think that he's really saying in this is that his way of doing things is different than our way of doing things. I mean, I think you you can read through the Bible and just be like, I wouldn't have done that. If I was God, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times if I were to keep a journal of just the things that God did that I wouldn't do, I'd just be writing. I'd have some writer's cramp going on. But God does things different than what we do in his kingdom. In fact, I've heard it said that his kingdom is like an upside-down kingdom because his kingdom is for the poor in spirit. His kingdom is for children. His kingdom is for those who come to him like a child. His kingdom is for those who are persecuted. But again, if you dive deep into this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us that it is for the sick and not the healthy. It's for the humble and not the proud. It's for tax collectors and sinners, not the religious elites. This kingdom is for prostitutes, not professionals. It's for prostitutes, not the polished. This kingdom is for the marginalized, not those that marginalize. The kingdom of God is for the people who've left their family for the cause, the people who use their gifts to spread his name, to spread his fame. It's for the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lepers. This kingdom is for those who have left everything to follow and have not turned back. If you were here last week, we talked about the, the disciples left everything to follow. Jesus and I encourage people to write down a piece of paper or something that they feel like God is calling to leave behind. And people wrote on a piece of paper, crumbled it up, and threw it up here on the stage. And what he's saying is a kingdom is for people who are willing to leave those things behind. The kingdom is for those who see that there's a surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It's for those who labor and produce fruit. The kingdom is for the people who want his kingdom and not their own kingdom. I mean, the way that God does things in his kingdom is so different than the way that you or I would do things. It's an upside-down kingdom. His kingdom is full of grace, it's full of mercy, it's full of forgiveness, and it's full of justice. His kingdom is full of love, unending, unfading, unmatched love. When he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, I am the king. My way of doing things is different. He also says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, that he, Jesus, holds the keys to the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 23, 13, he says that he permits no one from shutting the door on someone else. I think that if we're honest, if we really dive into the darkness that's in some of our heart, each of us have that person that does not deserve the grace of Christ. Jesus says he permits none of us from shutting the door on anyone. He is king. He does things different than what we do. He's not, it's not a democracy. He has his way of doing things, and it's the right way, and he's calling a people to obedience. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's inviting people to follow, to come to him as the king and obey him as the Lord, as the master, as the king, that idol's The things that we put in in our lives that are more important than God, that those things would just fall away. He's inviting the people to obey and to learn his ways, to walk in his path, to walk in his light. He wants to remove the darkness. He wants to go into the deepest place of our hearts. Each of us in this room, we have little pockets in our hearts and our minds that we don't want God to go into. We don't want his light. We're not ready for it. It'll be too uncomfortable. But what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's he's wanting in. The only way that you can get out of darkness is when light comes in. So that's what he's saying. He wants to wash away our filth. I was thinking about this verse. I love this verse, 1 Peter 2, 9. I probably quote it almost every other time I preach. But in it, He's talking about those who are followers of Christ, those who have been saved, who've been born again, those who are Christians, those who have bowed their knee before Christ, whatever, however you want to describe that. He says that those people, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you mo- may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. So here's what's crazy. God is so light, so bright, it would kill us to see it, yet Jesus is the radiance of Christ and he reflects that light to us, but then you know what we're described as? You are the light of the world. When Jesus says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's doing is he's saying, I am the king, my way's different, but he's inviting a people to obey and to be a light. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes into darkness and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just this powerful thing of what what light does in the midst of darkness. But he's calling us to be a light. Can you imagine if we, as a people, allowed him in, allowed the light into the deepest and darkest spots? and we were truly changed as a body as a people even if we're just like a little flicker of a candle it would be seen for 30 miles if God got into the deepest and darkest places as us as individuals and us as a body it would be seen for 30 miles like that is so powerful and i was thinking about the light of a, the flicker of a candle and the, the thing that's crazy is it's light, and then it's like almost like the light goes away momentarily to pop back up. It's almost like the light dances. And I think that what happens when a light kind of dances like that, it's kind of like us as the body of Christ, is, is we're, we're, we're shining this light for people to see, but then something happens. We, we treat somebody the way that we shouldn't. We fall into a pattern that we shouldn't. And it's almost like the light goes out just momentarily to pop back up. But I think that God wants to take a people... Walk out his kingdom in obedience. I want to go back to the story in closing. I want to go back to the story at the very beginning. You wake up in the middle of the night. You gotta to go to the bathroom. Do you try to find a light or do you avoid the light? And I want to put yourself in that story, but think of that story as of life. In life, would you say that you are in the darkness and you really don't want the light? You really don't want to be woken up. And maybe even you're navigating this life without light. If that's where you are today, I want to remind you that the word said that the God of this age is seeking to blind people. That's what's going on. Your heart, your flesh, will want to keep you in the dark because it's more uncomfortable. In fact, it's even more fun for a season. The Bible says that sin is fun for a season. And maybe you've been living in this darkness and you've got to a point that you've realized like I'm in darkness and it's no longer fun. The word says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Maybe you're here today and you would say that kind of like in the same way, you wake up in the middle of the night, you want to go to the bathroom, you want just a little bit of light, you want the night light on. You don't want to soil the floor, but you also don't really want it to be jolted awake. You know, I think that oftentimes what we do is we try to have the least amount of light we can and still get by. So if you are here today and you'd say, yeah, I feel like I I want the light, but I only want so much of the light. I only want God to go so far into my own heart. I only want him to go so far into my own mind. My challenge and my encouragement to you would be to remember that it is he that is king. He does things different. And I would encourage you, and I know I've been in this position too, that we need to, to try to get out of the way. That's all we got to do. We've just got to try to get out of the way and let his light shine. Allow the light to go into the deepest places of our hearts and our mind. Or maybe, I, you know, I was thinking about this, and this I don't know if this will make sense, but I think that there's another group of people that we really haven't even talked about, and it's almost like you turn on the light in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, but the light's not as bright as you want it to be you'd be crazy if that was you, but the light's not bright enough, but I think that in our own lives, there can be times where we feel like we want God's light to shine on darkness, but we don't feel like it's shining as bright as we want it to. Does that make sense what I'm saying? There's times where we're like, I want you to illuminate this situation, but he's not illuminating it as fast as, he, as you want him to, or in the way that you want him to. And in those moments, I think what happens is we can start to get discouraged, like, God, I want you to, to fix this dark situation. And he's not working fast enough. It leads to discouragement, and then it, doubt creeps in. And we begin to be distracted by all these things of this life, and our heart grows more and more distant from God. If you are in a spot that you feel like you're seeing darkness, but you're not seeing the light as powerfully as you want to, my challenge and my encouragement for you is this. Remember, repentance starts with belief. Trust that he is at work. And maybe he's using a black light. If you ever use a black light, you see really disgusting stuff. It doesn't seem that bright. But he's exposing it in its darkest, ugliest forms. And maybe you're just not seeing the light as powerfully as what he's doing. If you are in that spot, I challenge you to think through the fact that repentance starts with belief. Trust that he is at work. And then lastly, maybe the light's on. Wake up in the middle of the night, you turn all the lights on. Every light in the house, turn them on. And you feel like life's going pretty good. You know, I feel like I've repented. I feel like life's going normal. I feel like I'm living for the kingdom. What I have found in my own life when I get to that spot is when it's the most dangerous. Because pride comes before the fall. And what happens is if you've ever been out like as night is settling in, And it's like you're sitting outside and everything's good and it's light outside and then it's like it's getting a little bit darker second by second and you haven't even noticed it. Then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, it's dark. It just creeps on you. And I think that's totally what the enemy wants to do is he wants us to, even if we're in the light, he wants us to minute by minute, second by second to be taken a little bit more into darkness. To where all of a sudden you wake up and it's dark. All of a sudden, you come to and you see that darkness. And so if you are someone that you'd say you feel like, man, God is light, and I'm seeing him move, and this is awesome, and I'm walking in the light, and I'm walking in obedience to him, man, I would challenge you. The enemy wants to use that for you to get a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further from the light. And so in that scenario, through the the art of subtleness, he will do that. So we need Christ. We need him, and we need to, to get closer and closer to the light. Because if you're not by the light, it's getting darker and darker and darker. So, to close, no matter where we are, this text is, I think, great for us because it tells us that Jesus is the true light and that he goes into the darkest places there are. And when he gets there, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So my question for me, my question for you is, how do we respond to that? Let's pray. God, um, I confess that there are people that I do not want in the kingdom. There have been people that I thought don't deserve it. There have been times where the thoughts of my heart are so dark, they're almost alarming. I confess to you that the darkness in my mind Can be shocking. But God, I pray that we as a people, we would allow your light to shine into the deepest places of our heart, that we wouldn't try to squelch the light. We would get out of the way and let your light do what it does. And God, I pray that we as a people truly would repent, we would turn. We would believe who you are, what you are like. We would repent, we would turn. And we would know you as king. We would understand that your ways are different than ours. And we would learn to walk in obedience to you. God, help us to be a people who respond in a positive way to you. And to your call to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In your awesome and precious name.